Welcome to the Great Bass Podcast. I'm Steve Smith along with Rami Baby, episode 126. Rami Baby's in the house. I have to admit that, uh, Ram, I tanked on your spelling of your last name. I think it has 19 vowels. Why don't you spell your last name, Ram? We got V U P P U V P P A L A A L A D A D D A D I Y A M I Y A M A M. So all the junior tennis players that I've reprimanded for tanking, I have to be honest, I tanked on your last name. So say that to us slowly three times. It's easy if you if you split it in half. So if you go Vupala Dudium. Vupala Dudium. Done. You got it. Oh, you got to go two more times. Vupala Dudium. Vupala Dudium. But misspell it. Now, I've, I've worked with some Indian students. Um, you're Indian. Have you ever been in a spelling bee? I think once in, in eighth grade. I did, I did more, or sorry, in, in fifth grade. I did more of the math bees. I remember working with one young player, and maybe he was in the finals. I don't think he was a national champion, but very close. And I told the parents, but he didn't take my advice. I said, next year, just use spell check. Just use spell check. You were in its great experience one time, but I don't think you really have to go through the spelling bee year after year. Okay, Rami Baby is the super intern. I always think of Ram Ramanathan. We say, okay, that's the player we worked with briefly, briefly, briefly through Arvin Arvindan. Went to the US Open with him a couple of times. But the super intern, tell us, uh, you're 24, known you since 14. Gary Alpert works with Brian Clark, all these connections, tennis facility in Cincinnati. He brought you to us. And my recollection is uh, you're, you went home and you, your dad said it wasn't perfect. And he, your dad called me up and said, we must bring him back. But tell, let's go through that. Tell the listeners about your connection with us. Uh, obviously, you're in the, the real world. You're not in the tennis world now. But you've been around here for the long weekend and you, you haven't skipped a beat with your base knowledge and your stroke production. Tell us, tell, tell the listeners your, we'll go through a few of the chapters too, the in, summer interns, but just go with your beginning days with us. Sure. So I think the first, first time I came to see Steve was, yeah, with, with Gary Alpert. I'd met Gary for the first time when I think I was seven or eight at the first tennis center that I was at back in Colorado. And uh, he had been there for um, some time. We'd lost connection after he, he left soon after that, um, but he was the first one to show me true continental grip, swing away from the court more, um, to hit more of a slicer, and that was a total game changer for me. Uh, we had reconnected um, closer to when I was yeah, 13, 14, and then we'd, we'd, we'd made some changes you know, to, to strokes in general, but um, he was looking for, you know, he recommended that we go for a total rewiring by, by seeing you, so we made, made a trip out. He and I made a trip out in the spring of 2013. and uh, You were how old? 13, I was 14. Uh, 14 at the time. 14 years old. So that's right, 10 years, 24. Go ahead. And yeah, it was a total game changer. I think it was, you know, of course, a bit of a shock getting the first first dose of Steve Smith. But um, good, good medicine. Oh, totally. No, no. I mean, it was definitely needed um, where it was, you know, general attitude change. I think, you know, I, I had developed some general disciplinary skills from... My parents, sure, but also uh, martial arts when I was younger. But it was another another great push in the right direction when it came specifically to, to tennis. Um, and, you know, total technical rewiring, great information in general. Um, so from there, it was just diving right in. Of course, yeah, as you mentioned, I think 
I was a little bit shocked from, you know, the, the intensity of how things were, but it was definitely, you know, definitely needed and was able to come back up to speed. Well, for coaches, parents, I think you have to push buttons. I think of a girl by the name of Julia Hutchke, like the perfect child, the perfect human being. It's like, okay, Hutchke, call her by last name. I got to find some buttons to push to, to, to make her get better. I mean, and, and, and obviously the title is student athlete. They get racial, very repetitive on these podcasts, the Indian grading system, quickly A for average, B for below average, C can't have dinner, D don't come home, F find a new family. So I called you C plus. I knew, I just knew we were getting all A's. It's just the assumption I made. That might've been something that shocked you. You're getting a C plus here, kid. But what, what, what told, when you went home, you told your dad it wasn't the perfect experience and he's the one who called me up and said he must come back. I think it was just, yeah, I, I don't know if it was, if I said it was not the perfect experience. It was just, uh, you know, you just kind of knock back for a little bit, right? But once you kind of get back to your senses, it's like, okay, this is what we got to do. Yeah, you got to be your own best criticism. Be polite when you receive compliments, but just thrive on criticism. That's got to be your your juice, your Kool-Aid. Um, but then there were some more visits, but I think the, the, the two internships, um, NC State, for summer, then, then uh, Germany, Dusseldorf, right. Germany. And you were young. You were young. But no, you obviously very impressed us so much. It's like, okay, we got to have this kid back and bring him in for the whole summer. And, and uh, your dad certainly was up for it. I mean, remember communicating with your father many, many times. With at NC State, I'm a little bit spoiled where I can, I can move tomorrow and it's not like I've got to find private tennis lessons. I check my, my phone, check my emails, and people will come and, you know, have a captive audience. You know, they come up by airplane and rent a car, check into a hotel, and and they're not looking to go five miles down the street while I'm talking to them about their 400 backhand. With one of uh, Richard Hernandez, and then through Carlo Lavosi, who was a tennis teacher that we trained, and he's done very well in business all these years up in Toronto. It's a group of Canadians. And it was flattering. It was certainly an ego booster. They wanted to build a tennis smith village. In the center of it was to have a tennis complex, sports complex, training athletes. So, I mean, I think of Austin, Texas. That's a beautiful place. I said, they asked me, where would you where would you think would be a good place to have it? And I said, Raleigh, North Carolina. My parents had retired to Southern Pines. And you know, North Carolina is a beautiful state. And... and this group of investors said, well, why don't you go up and check, check out the market? At that time, I had sold my, the real estate holdings I had to run a tennis school in Tampa where I was for 15 years. So I just called up Matt Clore, who was at NC State, and spent, at that time, I mean, I had already spent a lot of time, years with Matt. So I went up and I worked as a volunteer. Uh, but yes, yeah, so why don't you we'll just recap a little bit, a few things from that summer, what comes to your mind? I think, so it's overall that summer was about six weeks. This was the summer of uh, 2014 uh, was the first one at NC State. So, yeah, you're a regular public schooler, so a lot of times, you know, people, not like the homeschoolers where you can come for a longer time. You know, you get out of school at the end of June and towards August you got to go back. But go ahead. I think that was my first time being on a tennis facility at a university. So that for me was an awesome experience just to get the exposure, right? Being within, 
um, the NC State, you know, indoor outdoor facilities. Yep. They're very beautiful. Um, you can definitely see the kind of team camaraderie, you know, the team sort of centered um, facility design. So. Yeah, John Choboy was the men's coach, upstate New York, a great guy. You know, he really let, let Matt and I do a lot of things with with freedom. Um, we set up a, a junior tennis program. But that summer, um, Beck Bond, Robbie Mudge, and Austin Powell were seniors. They were rising seniors. That fall was their last year. And then there was a young guy, Ian Dempster, who was a student of Dave Anderson's, who I would worked with in visits out to uh, the facility they have, Brookhaven in Dallas. Um, I'll start with an Ian Dempster story. With um, he wasn't on the team, I think the last two years, and you know, um, maybe it was the last year and a half. But he stayed at Raleigh, stayed at NC State, graduated. Tony Bresky, the coach at Wake Forest, with Robbie Mudge, Ian Dempster did very well. It was almost an All American as a freshman. The whole point of this story is it's pretty hard to find a serving volleyer. So Ian had not been in competitive tennis. Last two years, maybe last a year and a half, didn't play on the NC State team. As I said, stayed there, graduated. And he played for Wake Forest as a, a graduate student. Played three doubles. They won the national championship, and Ian Dempster went to the White House. And that's the story I think of that. He, hit the, he served well. He volleyed well. You know, they, a lot of emphasis on, they call it three-zone doubles, the drill they do which most people do the drill, but unfortunately they haven't taught people how to hit the ball. Two people on one side, maybe six on the other. You feed in the approach shot, you win the point, you tag up. Then you feed in, they're at the baseline, they close in off a volley, they win that, they tag up. Then you feed a lob, they win that, and they run the other side. Some college teams use that as a warm-up. Um, what comes to your mind, uh, and, and you could also talk about Stu who's there with you. Um, but what other thoughts on that summer? Yeah, Stuart... Um Stu Bartrosik, um, awesome guy. I think he, even for me, had really set the pace of, you know, how things would be, at least, you know, staying with you and coming into the facility. You know, we'd sneak in, we'd, we'd get up early, get some food in, head out to um, head out to the facility with you, be there all day, come back. Get I, don't, I don't know if we sneaked in. We had a key. Oh, I mean, sorry. <laughs> with, uh, it might have seemed like we were sneaking in no, because no. It was, the sun wasn't up. They had beautiful complex, NC State. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know they fixed it up. But yeah, he went to Columbia. That's right, yeah. And, I mean, I think he's got two degrees, I'm going to guess, Greek mythology and British literature, and the next thing you know, he's running a hedge fund or something like that. Um, but he was tough. I mean, he could just grind it. He was a true scholar. A true scholar to me is someone who's, they're studying something that has nothing to do with a report card. And, you know, the kind of person who can read in a snowstorm. Uh, but I remember my son Connor showing up and going, I love this guy. I can remember, I mean, you and Stu didn't play as well as the, those four. It was the three Musketeers and the three seniors and, and Ian and didn't play as well. Uh, and of course, you know, I was there the whole summer where the head coach and the assistant coach, Choboy and then Clore, you know, they're recruiting. And, but I was, as a volunteer, you, you don't recruit, you stay there and with... Um, yeah, so many things. Uh, but those, I told those guys, they were, I said, guys, uh, give it two weeks and you'll have total respect for these guys. 
on basically two points. One, they work a lot harder than you do. And two, they both know so much more about tennis than you guys. I mean, you, you, you were, by then you were about 15? Yeah, 15. What else comes to your mind from that summer? The, I think you had a couple of junior camps that also came up at the time. So it was you know, kind of a switch between going through the, the junior camps that were set up there and then going back into training in the afternoon. Yeah, the same as now. I mean, juniors, you know, could have been six, it could have been 16. But, you know, people that were, initially they weren't from uh, a few. Sophia Patel, I think. There was a few that were from North Carolina. There's people who moved there, like a Victor Lillo. Um, you just go through the cast of characters um, that were there. Beck Bond, he really wasn't in the lineup as a junior, a junior in college. Our term junior, I was saying a junior tennis player, but a junior in college, he really, um, you know, he wasn't in the lineup. He might have played some, but he wasn't a lineup guy. His senior year, he lost one match in the ACC. And those guys, they worked really hard that summer. And, you know, they were volunteering their time, but they were in their, you know, they were, they weren't quite, they weren't putting quite the hours we were in, but they were, if we were doing 12 hours, they were doing eight. With uh, anything else from that time? I think I just remember, you know, it was, we did just have always you know, players coming in. So it was kind of going through the same cycle of going from kind of the, you know, admin side, going in, doing reviews and then going back and training. Right. But it was always this, um, for me, it was a great way to push myself that summer where, I think the times that I, that I come with you, I like make sure that I'm always at hundred percent. So between, you know, doing kind of more of the you know, work-based stuff, but also being able to go in and just grind with tennis. Um, those were always new heights that I was able to push myself towards. So those were always the biggest kind of benefits that I felt that I received. Um, I think tennis teachers, it's a good exercise to go back and say, okay, what were you doing all these summers in your career? This summer, this summer, this summer. I always tell people you really can only measure improvement one year at a time. But the women's crew, the coach had been let go, but they allowed him to run his camp. And it was just maybe for three weeks. So that happened. We had nothing to do with that, but we were there, this really huge day camp. And then also, too, is that the head coach had a small clinic. And I know he was paying his players handsomely. I said, you know, that's a lot of beer money. <laughs> I wouldn't be, I wouldn't not be paying my players handsomely to teach tennis. But, but anyway, um, yeah. So that that eventually converted all into one. But that initial summer converted into one junior program. With, I can remember one of the players, a bright, bright guy. He finished, and he was uh, going to take a semester and study his MCATs and, and go to med school, which he did. But I can remember uh, saying, hey, you're the, you're the coach, but he's going to go in. You sit there. You take notes while Rami Baby does the video analysis. And, you know, that's where you, you know, that'd be pushed a little bit. It's like, no, you're not going to be rude. Is it, he doesn't know how to do the video analysis. He doesn't have the information. But he'll take it. He'll take notes, and we'll go from there. You know, he's being paid. It's all, it's all good. Um, but that's one thing that comes to my mind with... Anything else? North Carolina, Matt Clore. Oh uh, yeah, no, Matt was awesome to to be around. I think um, to see you know 
he had gone from player to coach and had been around the game at various levels. I was slow working with juniors, but also working very closely with the college players. I think seeing that, I mean, you do this as well, right? But seeing that another spectrum, who somebody who's also not you, but has a really solid technical base in general and has, you know, really worked through everything. He also had a, a background with, with Dick Braden that his, that his father had introduced to him, right? Yeah, Ernie, he was taught really well. Matt was taught well, and but he tweaked his game. He was filmed, and uh, my son went to Florida State when Matt was a coach at Florida State, and Matt's, my son said, nobody can meet Matt. And I go, what do you mean? He's married. He's got a little baby boy. At that time, Case, his oldest, was, you know, all these years gone by. Now he has four kids with Lauren. But I go, come on, he's married. He got a baby. He's probably not sleeping at night. And he, what, do you, what do you mean nobody can beat him? My car said, nobody could beat him. He was born in 84, and I had um, I always heard his name because this kid I coached, Riley Hart, was born in 84. But he changed, he, changed his, he changed his game. He made these adjustments. He did it very quickly. But that was one thing, too, is that you know, I think it's very powerful to have a coach um, who's a better player than you are. He doesn't, doesn't, he hasn't hit balls in three or four days, and okay, he just jumps right in there. And I'm sure he's shocking the players at Florida where he is now. He's back, back in college tennis. I, I think of this with Matt, um, Max Cressy, who's jumped the ladder, is way up there, hard worker. It's a great story. And Mackenzie McDonald, uh, and Matt's a good, you know, quiet, humble guy, is that he meets with those guys and says, let's play a set. And both of them, the first time he played a set with either one, he won the set. What's the what's in Cal's name would transfer from Florida to Virginia? Trivia question for you. Does really has done really well on the tour. Gets to the semis twice now. The Australian. Oh, uh, uh, Danielle Collins. Collins. Danielle Collins. I you know spent so many years in Tampa. Fifteen years. I can remember when she was a scrappy ten year old, and someone said, "You know, it'd be great if you could coach this kid." And I'm watching her go. Yeah, I would love to coach that kid. But Matt worked with her, and uh, the first thing he did, he goes, well, let's just hit up the middle and see who misses. You know, so like an hour later, it's like, okay. So that's certainly one way. Um, and I think that, that back is so much in tennis, too. It's, but it, it is a bonus as well, Van Horn, probably the, arguably the best um, a combination of someone who is a world-class player and a world-class teacher would be Welby. And... Um, yeah, so Matt, Matt could flat out play. So then you go back to Colorado. Then it's the next summer, off, off to Dusseldorf, Germany. We took 25 kids from nine countries. I could say many things about that experience, but I remember just, just going, you know, my, my go-to guy, he's going to be the only person within the, the teenager, the group of teenagers who will learn how to use the train system. And of course, I was giving you a different level of coaching than the other kids that, you know, say, hey, you've got, when you leave here, you have to at least be able to, you know, teach tennis at a, a rudiment beginning level in German. What comes to your mind with that experience? I think I can still bust out parts of the word picture method on the serve. And then I think I still have key bits of vocab through the different strokes. Now that was, that was very good. Yeah. Because even in that situation, in that setup, we would do junior setup with uh, with some of the local some of the local players and then um i'd go out and, and train in the afternoon with with everyone else as well um i think yeah same thing there right where relative to the last summer it was kind of generally similar setup but it's just a whole other life experience right doing 
somewhat, somewhat similar thing, carrying similar patterns into to a whole new country, getting a whole new life view there. Um, but the locals were fun to work with. I think they had, you know, they, the younger kids there up to a certain age will be mainly work, you know, going to school in German. And after a certain point, they'll, they'll learn English. So there was one student who had a good hang, uh, handle on, on the English side, but he would be my, my little translator. So I'd ask him what one word was, right? It could be, you know, um, shoulder turn, schultern drehen, I think. Yeah, you got it. Schultern drehen. So I'd note that down on notepad, move on. Um, got a whole vocab list going and would just kind of memorize that through and go, go through all the strokes with them. Um, very cool. Love languages in general. So this was a new addition to the, to the collection. Dusseldorf, beautiful city. It's a beautiful club. I have to shout out to David Squire. Uh, he'll tell you that I'm the dumbest American on the planet, but I got the shout out that he's the dumbest Australian that's ever walked the face of the earth. But it was, you know, he's been there for, I must be 25 years now or more. And Andy Fitzell, he was there helping. That's where he met his wife, Leo. Great lady. She's from Dusseldorf. Uh, but they had the kids, the idea was to come over and they did play tournaments. Um, but to just learn to slide, learn to be able to move on red clay. And it's, you know, European tennis, uh, if, if parents could find a way, first, first of all, you have to have the skill set. You don't have to microwave tennis if you're, you don't really have the skill set. And I don't think you really have to do it at a really early, early age, but I, I, it'd be great for someone in their last year, 14s to be able to go over and play. And you got to go for as long as your school year schedule will allow you. Of course, the homeschoolers, the European summer starts earlier and finishes later. Um, I asked you the other day, you still doing the yoga? Still doing the yoga. Um, yeah, we had, was that? Oh, yeah, it was Mark Sekimov that brought us to that, that brought the yoga to our group. So, um, yeah, the fam- was- fam- family, the father and the daughter really into yoga and I remember coaching him, uh, and the dad just asked a, a, at least do 10 minutes of yoga every day. And, you know, I know now through that experience, you learn th- so much from parents, just you learn so much from experiences. A yoga master told me that if you're really into yoga, you could do a different 10 minute program every day. But initially, you know, it's not like your mom and dad have to put you in the car and drive across town to have you take a yoga class. It's just get your iPad, your computer, and, you know, just try to do your very best just copying that. I remember the USD had a great stretching program. It was James Blake doing all the stretches. It's funny how things, you know, come and go. I know you've been working with Johan Fruling, who's a fitness trainer from Germany. He's been here. He's here the second time. And we put together, or he, he yeah, I guess we put it together, but he, he uh, we have a hundred short videos with him on footwork drills. And, you know, I was, okay, I'm just going to copy that. We were talking about, uh, Ram, 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 the great, the great doubles player. What's, what's, uh, Rajiv Ram. Rajiv Ram, senior moment. I never coached him for one second. I, I did feed balls to him at the National 14s when he won it. I've seen that guy play a bunch. I shagged balls one time or two times when he was practicing with Austin Krychek. And, um, yeah, with uh, help me out during brain cramp. What was I going to say? Get me back on uh, track here. Great doubles player. Pressure. Great doubles player. I was going to say something. Uh, I got to come back to me. Senior moment. Like maybe we should cut and edit. No, I'm just teasing. 
with Ram, I was going to say, um, the, uh, you've been doing, uh, you set up a fitness program and then you switch to Roger. Oh yeah. Yeah. With Ram, you know, Sampras, they call him, thank you. Brain cramp, senior moment. They call him Sampras because he, what he did is he just studied film with Sampras over and over and over again. And if you watch him serve, it looks just like Sampras. And I always say about that guy, um, get back on track here, but I heard Mike Costa, the comedian who played at Illinois before him. So obviously they crossed passes that Rom yawns in between volleys. I mean, I went to this match at the Orange Bowl and this girl, she ended up winning it. She won the Eddie Hearn, she won the Orange Bowl. Basically no anxiety. Other people are just freaking out. I think the, the, in Dusseldorf, though, 24-7, 25 students going to Germany, staying, when you tell, and I don't want to pick on we Americans, but you tell the American parent, we're going to sleep at the tennis club. Oh, pardon me? We're going to sleep at the tennis club. Pardon me? No, we're going to get an air mattress, sleeping bag. You don't have to worry about bringing a sleeping bag. We'll, we'll buy those over there. It's like $10 each. And that's, it's so interesting, you know, you say, okay, boys here, girls there. And here's the boys locker room, girls locker room. And it was very controlled. Yeah. Cause I know a lot of people say, Hey Steve, let's go, let's go out to dinner. I said, no, I cannot go anywhere. Um, with, uh, but yeah, that setting, you know, it's a great way to cut out the hotel bill. And the other thing I mean, the weather is not like here in the States where it's so hot in the summertime. But when people, when the players go to bed, they, they actually, it's like a Christmas tree. You turn all the lights off and they all have their phone in their hand. With, uh, yeah, so many things. I mean, you know, I mentioned Paul McDonald all the time because I remember him saying this, and it's so true. If you coach a player for a long period of time, and adrenaline really helps memory. So I have a pretty good memory. You know, you're coaching kids and you're trying to get them better and it's, it's serious business and it's not, it's not something that you take lightly. Someone tells you, okay, I want to be a really good tennis player and your parents are making all these sacrifices. But yeah, the stories of players and the players, the players went through that, that summer. Um, but anyway, through those two summers, um, you know, Rom has a very good handle on the tennis teaching, the great base. Why, why don't we... Um, if you have anything else to add on Dusseldorf, what an experience. And it's, it's 24 seven. There's no breaks. There's no days off. And, um, there's variable after variable, um, high maintenance. That's a, for parents. If a coach and a teacher tells you that your child is low maintenance, that's a major, major compliment. But anything else from that summer come to your mind? I thought the tournaments were really fun. We hit up um, some tournaments for the the Bonner Cup. We had a tournament in Cologne, Cologne, and also in uh, Zollingen. So we would be uh, centered in that club in Dusseldorf, but then also had you know chance to uh, get on the train, head to some other parts of the country, um, and, and play there too. No, and the people, people, the people at the tournaments were so nice. You know, I remember one tournament over the top where the kids thought they were playing a pro tournament. You know, they've got physical therapists, they've got chiropractors and just like the pros, we've got kids that are, you know, they're walking around, they've got their shoulder iced and their elbow iced and their knee iced. And, and, uh, they became hypochondriacs because there was so much uh, medical assistance 
and you know it made them feel like a touring pro that they it was just out of control with some of them um and but you know the, i think there's a there's a positive in that even though there's a negative is that um they got the feeling of their dream okay this is what it's like in pro tennis with uh no the um the setting is beautiful i mean I, again i've been very fortunate i had to say half my career which is now 48 going on 49 years is that half the summers i've spent parts of in in, in germany but tell us a little bit about uh you know, what comes to your mind with some points. And I know we're going to talk about the great base and uh, what it holds for the future, what we'd like to see un- unfold. Um, what comes to your mind some points you'd want to make as far as tennis teaching? I, I think we could go back to uh, even how you got started. You be- became a certified tennis teacher as a teenager. You worked with wheelchair players. You worked with the underprivileged. Uh, you volunteered a lot of time in this organization, that organization. And that's where you've so many reasons you get the, the title super intern. I know like a David Squire, uh, Andy Fitzell, anybody, uh, Matt Clore, people that have dealt with you, the, the players, um, they get a kick out of getting in the update on what's going on in your corner of the world. But talk, talk to us a little about tennis teaching, some of the points you want to make. So with tennis teaching, I think looking back, um, of course, as, as you as you talk about, you know, t- teaching tennis was is a great way for is the highest source of retention, uh, our highest, highest what method of retention of information, right? So teaching is the highest form of retention for learning. Highest form of retention for learning. So I think going back through, you know, as soon as um, you know, I had even that first first interaction with you back in back in 2013. Um, you know, it was okay. How do you know? I'd stand in front of a I had a sliding door in at the back of at the back of the place that I had and so that would be my mirror basically so it's okay how do I how would I go through to convey this to someone else and so I'd be talking through you know to myself and just kind of going through small small movements to make sure everything looks looked good um and I think you know one thing you talk about is you know if, if someone has a dog teach teach your strokes to your dog um didn't have a dog but this was you know I think it sufficed and was you know was very helpful in in figuring things out Looking back to, I think, um, I think I very much enjoy the kind of step by step. Some might consider it didactic um, nature of 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 teaching, but uh, there was a point in time in which you know I, I was much more feel based. Where okay, if, you know, stroke feels good. I'll go to a tournament, compete. It feels good. That's great. I'd have a break that would happen over a weekend, and then I would just kind of reset, like wouldn't know what's going on. So for to, to come to you and say, okay, look, this is, you know, ABC step. This is what's going on. Go and go and do it. So for me to then go back through and be able to reconvey that, um, all that same information was, was very, was very helpful. I think my, uh, first kind of, in terms of tennis, tennis teaching in general, um, kind of experience going through kind of teaching motions came through martial arts when I was, when I was younger. Um, I had done martial arts, from around the time I was seven up until eleven, I uh, got my first degree black belt, and then had um, decided to go more more heavy into into tennis. But it's a very similar thing there, where in the same way that we go step by step through every stroke, they would go through this step by step through all the different forms and you know different combinations to go through. That was more of a mix of um, karate and taekwondo. So I think that was you know rooted pretty deeply inside me to basically get everything everything going there. And we would in the same way that 
you have students learn and then teach back to other students, we would do similar things there. After you got to a certain rank, you would teach younger students that are also up and coming. So I think that general feedback loop is always, has always been crucial. Um, but I think looking back to, I mean, in terms of things now, I'm not, you know, involved in tennis day to day, um, but there were so many positives that come from a secondary perspective, right? Even though, you know, things hadn't totally played out in terms of college tennis, there were still so many positives that are still carrying forward in, in secondary ways. I think the primary thing that comes to mind is our communication skills, right? When, for me, it ends up being kind of like a, a muscle where the more you kind of are on court um, and are able to convey different ideas in different ways, you know, you have to kind of get into the mind of a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old to really be able to you know, go through different things. We have the word picture method. We have the exact you know, instructions. We also have scientific justification for why certain movements occurred. That's all great for different populations, right? Um, but that's also crucial in, in communication where you're able to kind of get in the, the head of someone else. So I felt like now, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying like some expert communicator, but for me to get to where I am now in terms of communication and kind of socialization, teaching tennis had a huge part in that too. One thing for our listeners to go back to when you talk about teaching, the late Stephen Covey, your exercise, you wrote many books, but one was uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And one exercise is he says you should be able to write your own eulogy. So what someone's going to read or, or state, speak, say at your funeral. So it's a little morbid, but I really think a great exercise for tennis kids is say, okay, let's write a bio. No more than four sentences. You know, under 12 years old, and you know, some, some 12 year olds, okay, I'm ranked or I won this tournament. With, uh, I think, of uh, Raven Claussen, who was a guest, and we were pulling him to, to win at Wimbledon, you know, whether as well as a number of other places. And he has won quite a few ATP titles. But when he did get to the finals of Wimbledon, that's the wow. I mean, he also got to the finals of Australian playing doubles, cracked the top 10. I remember Roberto Cal, who's been a guest on a podcast, said he ran the Dollar Clinic. So he was sent to me as an 18-year-old. He, he could have gone to college in the U.S., but he's going to pursue a pro career. And I said, you're going to learn to teach tennis. And, you know, I think everyone should put that in their bio. I'm a, I play tennis and I teach tennis. You know, I, you know to teach, you know, what a great honor, and to be able to give back. Um, but keep going uh, in the tennis teaching, you know, problematic areas, what are, what are pluses, what are minuses, what are, what are criticisms? Uh, so one thing that we had chatted about pretty recently was kind of this, um, you know, we have, we get, you know, Great Brace Care is this principle in which we say, okay, um, strokes, stroke production is not, is based off of scientific principles and the physical laws, dimensions of the court and physical laws, not any coach's opinion or any theory. And basically there are, you know, fundamental principles that are going to apply to any stroke, but I think just in, you know, when someone first comes to the program or someone's not totally exposed to that kind of instruction set, you know, some of the patterns that I've, that I've seen just with other students is they want to have strokes that are customized and personalized to them, right? There's too much emphasis on, on personalization where, you know, someone can go and buy a product that's just right for them. Someone can go, you know, get XYZ options and kind of pick and choose different things. And there's a sliver of truth in the sentiment behind that. I think part of that comes down to they want something that is that they can own, 
that is really going to work for them. But that doesn't mean that they should pursue technique that's going to be totally orthogonal or totally against what the fundamental principles are behind, you know, each behind the biomechanics and the actual physical laws that are behind all the, you know, everything that we teach. And so um, that would be, you know, one kind of something to keep in mind as, you know, as one of the kind of blocks that new players often face when kind of coming into our system. Um, and, you know, at, at some point, you know, it's not like we should just be, it's not like a player should always have this foreign um, sentiment towards whatever strokes they have, right? There's always a phase that we'll see players enter. I, I was stuck in it for a long time, which is being teched out, right? And I think that's where, you know, someone doesn't feel like they totally own their strokes, but after a certain point, um, they really, you know, that, that sentiment will, will come. That's just that, that initial pain really takes its toll. Well, uh, there's positives to actually being teched out. And people on our podcast have heard this. It looks mechanical because you're working in mechanics. Vic Braden, your players look stiff. Yes, we let them loosen up after they win nationals. And again, repeating now, one of our students, you know, top 10 recruit in the country, and one coach asked the dad who taught your son. And really, once they took, once they had the videos made, they never went to another pro, the family, three boys and the dad. And, you know, but he used my name, used my name third person, Steve Smith. And the, the coach said, no, no, no. I've watched Steve teach and his, his tenants look, his players look nothing like this. And they said, well, how long did you watch him teach? He said, one day. He goes, well, this is what it looks like 10 years later. I mean, you know, you got to give it a break. I mean, with, you know, you don't, don't judge the unfinished product. If someone's going to get their kitchen renovated, it's going to get worse before it gets better. The, uh, but coming back to, uh, I'd like to mention that again, personalization. Mike Larshide, um, I talked to, uh, I, I helped set up a match for Tim Maddox. His daughter's Bethany Maddox-Sands. Does commentate on TV and everybody should know she is. She's won a gold medal. She's won majors. She's a great doubles player. And when she was really, really young, Larshide gave her lessons. But Larshide's the one who defined the great base is that it's print first, cursive second, and then signature. And it's so um, so wrong to say, well, we're just going to copy somebody's autograph and say, okay, we know this is Rafa Nadal, but if you, I don't really know exactly how he, his signature looks, but unless he has super penmanship, you can't really tell. Um, our, our number one mentor, Vic Braden, you could tell his his way he signed his name. Some people are just meticulous. And, but most people, they scribble their name. I, I know people look at my signatures. They say, yeah, there's two S's, but they couldn't tell if there's anything else. But I think that's great for people to hear is that um, they, they just need to understand that. But in, in, in tennis teaching in America, I think it's very difficult to run a program because the individual becomes bigger than the program. You know, what about me? What about me? Um, what else comes to your mind? So, one, interrupt again. The listeners got to realize that you've you've made videos and you did skill testing and you you're in your organizational skills. Um, you know, we're not we're not running our program. You know, people come in and it's and I've you know got people working hard. Or, okay, we're getting this done, but you know, over forty eight years, you have different groups of people helping you. But your organizational skills are outstanding. So, but you did hours of that. Go ahead. 
Um, I think some other perspectives that I think have played into have played into tennis are um, some things that I've kind of picked up through school and some other you know more uh, career related material that I had ended up picking up one of which was kind of taking negotiations class through through college and I think understanding certain principles that kind of came out of there right the main main kind of thing is one of the main principles that goes behind negotiations are understanding where your anchor is in in a certain in a certain deal right so fundamentally you know any interaction can be a negotiation is what you know we'll we'll pick up we'll, we'll learn that class and that could be from relationships with romantic partners to business relationships to even just friendships and bringing that to tennis, it was, you know, I think my, you know, people have different anchors of where they're set, right? And it comes down to, you know, how do you, number one, negotiate with yourself, but also how do you negotiate in, in let's say, a point, right? A certain tennis match can be seen as, okay, this is where I am. You know, how am I going to tolerate certain, you know, certain shots and certain certain tactics and be able to adjust? Um so for me, kind of going through one of the, one of the main things that, that that came up there was learning how to kind of push back on on certain deals. I think I would be, I think my tendency tends to be a little bit more agreeable, right? And so learning really how to say you know no to certain deals that would be unfavorable in my you know to my benefit um, was you know was a very valuable skill to kind of pick up there. Now relating that back to tennis, I think. The ability to kind of push back in a negotiation is very similar to just being able to maintain one's shot tolerance. Where I think there are a couple of narratives that, that come up with shot tolerance. One narrative is, you know, on kind of more on the negative effort side, someone just doesn't want to keep the ball in play longer than than three shots because they can't. Right? Or, you know, that's that's one narrative. I think one other narrative that I that I went down was okay. I am. This shot is feeling long, and that's that feeling, again, kind of like an anchor point, right? That feeling was after seven shots, and after hitting seven so- shots, it's like, oh my gosh, this little point is going too long. I'm going to try to rip a shot to get it over with. So, you know, what what am I willing to do to really push back against this point? Is is my limit seven shots? If I'm in a negotiation, if someone is hounding on me in a certain, you know, a certain perspective for a deal. Am I really going to back down after seven kind of back and forths with them? Um, now, kind of the perspective that I've kind of taken, okay, in a certain negotiation, if I'm willing to walk into a room and say no a thousand times, of course, being respectful, right? It's not like, you know, there are a lot of shows that are going to be dramatic and, you know, you know, laying down the hammer and doing all that. That's not what I really mean. They're, the The professor that I had had a really good phrase there. The, the phrase was to be uh, politely persistent in whatever kind of objective one wants to go down. So how can, you know, how can one really, and on the tennis side again, how can really one really be able to just push back on, on things, right, and just be able to maintain a certain level of tolerance to keep a rally going and kind of assert your own objective going forward. So for me, that's been very helpful and just, I used to have issues mainly just keeping the ball in play, having a rally going just because I'd kind of get shaky after a certain point, right? So kind of delaying that. Yeah, yeah let, let's touch upon those. Uh, I mean, today I yelled across the courts, noisy park, over here. And, it's, you know, I like to stay away from opinions, but my opinion is, is the young girl's just going to blast the ball out because of her fitness level. Um, you know, the Vic Braden 
this rally could go to 100, and they love it. But coming back to the word no, too many times when people are teaching, they just become cheerleaders. They have, they have a hard time being the heavy, good cop, bad cop. And honesty is the best policy. Braden used to say no so much when he teaches tennis. But, you know, he was, you know, Santa Claus. He was just jolly, jolly guy. Now, people have to realize, and we studied tennis. I say we as a group. Uh, obviously, that was not something that you were, you were part of, but you actually got a two-year degree. Only the people who went through that in the 80s would understand what we were doing is we would take film, because we had time. It was like, you know, we are studying tennis. We would take film of Braden and a, a, a movie, a videotape, and we would, the term years ago, you would blacken the TV screen. You could turn, the, turn one dial and all of a sudden there's no picture, but you had the sound. And you could just listen to Braden. And then we, we studied Braden films where we, didn't, we wouldn't use the volume. And, you know, how he would demonstrate and I mean, just a master teacher but Vic would always go, no, no, no. And uh, I was flattered one time. I wasn't at this teacher conference, the famous one in New York. I used to go every year, but then it was at the same time where I had to get all these kids registered on a college campus. So then it was like, okay, I can't go. But, you know, Vic said that I had always told him, I said, what you need to do is just ask people, anybody need help on their forehand? Anybody need help on their backhand? Instead of talking about electric myography or brain typing or brain scans, whatever, is that um, he would just have people come out from the audience. And, and he would not get them hitting the ball better. You know, he would get them hitting the ball better in one minute, but he would say, no, no, that's not quite it. No, 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 no. And um, I do think that, uh, and you hear that, I know now you're in the, the real world of New York City. We can go through, you know, tell us about the University of Virginia and tell us some of the things you've done with your career so far. But a yes man, yes, 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 just, you know, um, absolutely. You know, they're just, they're letting the person know that they're talking to, absolutely, you're correct. Yes, yes. Um, tell us a little bit about, um, so you, you spent these internships with us, you graduate, um, you do A-OK in the academic side, you get an academic scholarship, University of Virginia. Tell us a little bit about that. What did you study, that type of thing? Sure, yeah, so... At UVA, um, basically came in uh, wanting to kind of combine some interests in, in computer science and finance. I think uh, actually through tennis, I mean, yeah, looking back, yeah, tennis has opened up so many doors. One of the doors of interest that, that opened up was through a um, basically an adult tennis league that I was a part of at my senior year of high school. And, you know, basically what happens is you kind of go up and down courts based off of how you how you win or lose the, the prior weekend. So... Um, there's, you know, a couple weekends where I'm on a court with this guy and he, um, you know, I'll see him on and off, but, you know, we would just chit chat and that was about it. Uh, about, you know, five or six weeks in, he's chatting with, um, someone else who's in real estate and they would kind of you know, talk, talk about their roles and, and whatnot. I find out that he is in the hedge fund space. Um, and you know, they're talking about markets, they're talking about different things that, and, you know, like an economic based discussion and, um, that just kind of opened my eyes as another kind of cool, um, cool path to, to keep an eye on things. I'd always wanted to kind of combine business with, with whatever I'm doing. And so there would always be kind of a technical edge. It could be some kind of science or math based thing. Um, but they're all business would kind of be a, definitely be on the, in the picture somehow. When I get, went to UVA, um, I knew I wanted to do computer science based off of 
a computer science class that I'd taken in high school as well. So I was looking to pursue both avenues. I was deciding between UVA, UVA and a couple schools in the West Coast, um, but UVA allows students to come in to pursue more interdisciplinary pads, um, which was which was you know, right down my alley. Um, luckily, was able to get into the business school come in, coming in my third year, and um, things worked out from there. Had a, you know, some uh, some cool internships that I was able to take a part in. Um, and after after graduating, I worked in Charlottesville initially as a software developer, doing uh, mobile applications for um, one you know one client. There was a media company, uh, Fortune 50 media company. The other was more of an internal project there. Um, after time went on, I was looking to there. There were some folks I had worked with in the past through uh, through other internships. I'd worked with them directly, but they were in the same organization uh, that I was in, and. Um, you know, we were able to reconnect after, after some time they had split off to start a, um, a new fund. And so, you know, we, one of the team members had reached out for a new role that had opened up in which they were looking for someone with both the finance and computer science background. Thankfully things had worked out with the, um, with the interview process and it was kind of intense first little part as we got up to speed with, um, with the whole investment process that we were, that we were taking on, but it's been very fulfilling so far. Uh, I was always looking for some kind of mix between computer science and finance, and finally, it's been it's played out well. So, well, we, kinda... yeah, we need to back up at the, for the listeners. I asked Rami Baby uh, seven seven different interviews to get the job, but let's go back. I know you worked at the tennis club, so you could get court time, indoor court time is expensive. What type of jobs did you have in high school? I know you did a lot of free teaching, volunteer teaching. Then, what type of jobs did you have while you were at the university? Sure. Through high school, it was. I think any role I really had was related to tennis, through teaching tennis, to be able to, yeah, string and work the front desk. And uh, it was it was mostly it was mostly teaching. I would do you know some stringing. There would be, um, you know, I, I would be around so I could help out with some things around the tennis center. But um, very very generally there, I think I took on more roles when I was in when I was in college. The first one kind of side gig that I had was raising funds for the university. We basically cold call, um, you know basically alumni, uh, alumni and interested donors that had come across the table. And so um, we'd go to a specific facility, go through and call um, for several hours in the evening and then go back to do whatever we needed to do. That was actually very, very fulfilling. I think I got, was able to raise about, I think it was $5,000 throughout the whole semester. So that was, that was a cool little metric to, to take off. Um, after some time though, I was looking to, Maybe do something you know more related towards some kind of long term, um, long term path that I was that I was going to go down down the road. Uh, I'd done you know there were some different um, clubs and um, you know like student related activities that I could that I could uh, take part in UVA. So that took up some time uh, after a while. Uh, the last in the last year of, of college, COVID happened, um, but I was able to take on a role through the. A UVA library in which we were looking to basically kind of renegotiate certain uh, contracts with our different journal vendors. So if you imagine the university is going to have all kinds of resources for journals. Well, over time, since the 80s, as tuition has risen and basically as the cost of college has risen, different journals have been able to charge higher and higher rates for their journal packages. Well, what ends up happening is a lot of these universities, including including UVA, ends up using a very specific portion of those journals and the price, the higher price gets justified by 
kind of these filler journals that get that get tossed into these packages. So it ends up being basically like an eighty twenty principle, which is what that role was all about. I went, I came in to kind of help the data science, the UVA uh, research library team to go through and analyze all kind of usage information. So um, had a whole kind of year of that project, kind of going through analyzing all that, coming up with different metrics to figure out what it actually gets used, and then creating a dashboard that then got used throughout throughout UVA for or throughout Virginia for. Um, similar negotiations that were going on overall. Um, I certainly appreciate you uh, staying in touch and calling. And one time you were in Toronto and I said, what were you doing? What are you doing in Toronto? I think of uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Tell the listeners what you're doing in Toronto for the University of Virginia. Sure. Yeah. There was a um, uh, international trading competition that was hosted with the uh, Rotman, Rotman School at the University of Toronto. So there were schools from different places, different countries around the world will basically come there do some trading trading simulations. It was very fun. Uh, we had a really good result that had been the best result that the team had had in um, in, in, in various groups, uh, kind of various you know sub sub competitions then uh, that we had ever had. So that was a very good. Um, kind of outcome overall the team the year that came after us was able to build on top of that and achieve an even better uh, but even better result so um that was again another another thing that was kind of right down the alley for future interests as well with sport university of virginia what's the what's the, i mean they won a lot of men's titles i don't know if they were winning when you were there but what, what are the best sports at the university of virginia Basketball is huge. UVA loves basketball. We got the uh, 2019 NCAA title. Um, campus went went wild uh, uh, with that win. Um, everyone really kind of comes together when it comes to, the, to different sports events. Sports events. Our football team isn't isn't so good, but our um, you know, so- soccer athletics are, are very solid. We'll have I know um, that. Field hockey is also is also up there. Um, golf has a good team as well. So I think you know there's a lot of stuff that you know, that students can re- get really rallied behind to to go see at the UVA. Yeah, I think Keith Kachuk, who's a great American hockey player, I think he scored over 500 goals. Two sons are in the uh, NHL, but our fact checker, I'm pretty sure his daughter is a great field hockey player. She plays in Virginia. A little trivia there for you, Rob. With um, so you, you've touched upon it with tennis helping you out um, through school, uh, you know, as a student athlete. What advice would you have for, um, you know, a lot of parents listen to these podcasts when they're driving their kids to and from practice. What advice would you have for students, student athletes? Tennis carries a lot of secondary benefits where... I mean, just being around Steve number one ends up being kind of much more of life skill building and um, ends up being a little different, totally different lifestyle that you that you get into. The kind of habits that really come out of that come out of being around Steve um, help beyond just any potential for college tennis or pro tennis or anything like that. Right? They're the kind of work ethic that one can develop will carry into into so many different things. When it comes to specific types of advice, I think starting early. Let's say you know. The plan is to go, you know, a lot of people do want to go to college, be able to play college tennis and go, go beyond that. It definitely, you know, starts with starting early. And uh, there, I think looking back, there were certain things that really helped kind of getting up to speed, right? 
before even anyone really gets their junior year, which is usually ACT, AC, uh, SAT, ACT, that's the main time period to kind of the last, the last time that people can really take the, those exams before college admissions. There are ways to really kind of get ahead of the ball to really um, get ahead uh, with, with all of that, right? What you, what's tough is that junior year is already very intense when it comes to high school. So being able to, so needing to tack on the SAT and ACT can be pretty stressful. So one can really kind of get ahead by maybe seeing how to um, how to approach those exams earlier on. Um, so that could be you know one one general strategy. In terms of other points of advice, I think maintaining you know school and, and tennis can be very um, can be definitely challenging. I think the, the homeschooling model is. You know, looking back, I think I was very happy with the academic program that I that I chose. I'm very curious to see. You know, I look back and I think, you know, what what could have gone, what what could have happened if I went, totally went homeschooled and had gone down that route. Um, definitely, a very important discussion to have. Comes down to kind of you know what kind of scheduling would work out. Also, I think it comes down to you know, parents being involved and in what kind of schedules they can also accommodate. Um, but definitely worth you know seeing if that's really the path that one wants to go down after, you know, especially after meeting Steve and seeing what's really required to go down the track of college tennis and seeing what's possible afterwards. Well, you mentioned one thing also is, you know, when you start, um, you know, you can start anytime. You can, you know, I always talk about Bob Carmichael, the late Bob Carmichael, who started playing tennis at 21. No, he's a tough guy. Like Leighton Hewitt, years later, he was an Australian footballer. And so he started playing tennis at 21. Ten years later, he's in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. So there are those stories that people could, people could start late and become very good tennis players. Um, you know, I've learned so much from my students. You know, you, you learn from yourself. You learn from the parents and fellow coaches. Ryan Fleming, he would meet with players, say they were 16, 17 years old. And it's not to take the air out of someone's sails, but it's a, you know, let's have this meeting and you really think you're going to play pro tennis. And you could. Um, I think one, a lot of times when people overcome that and go, well, um, I'm not, I'm just not that outcome oriented. I, I love the expression, I heard Noah Rubin, um, young American years ago when junior Wimbledon. And I remember reading this, it may have been from his coach, a coach in New York, he says, the best goal is to have no goals. I mean, so many people are just so goal oriented, ranking UTR, it's just creates so much anxiety. So I just, I just want to be the best I can be. I want to just continually year after year, become better at what I'm doing. Um, but with you know meeting people early on and going okay let's put this in perspective you know i ask kids all the time do you love tennis you think you'd be playing when you're 35 or the bradenism you know you're 15 you got 75 years to work on your game uh but that reality check and you know i think we're you know with andrew rube comment he made the, the harvard coaches a podcast is going to be posted later but he gave a great shout out to division three tennis and it's like, you know, where am I going to play? Just, I just want to play. And, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be for a team. I just want to play. I just want to have fun. I want to be Bobby Riggs. I want to be in the game. With, uh, you know, we've, we did video work today. We filmed Rom. And not, obviously, with his schedule, not playing much tennis. But his technique, we, you know, and I, I told the young Canadian boy who's been ranked as high as two in his age group nationally, is I'll send him a copy of your tape because you have better technique than he does. I remember explaining that to people because 
you were a giver. You were you were altruistic. You were wrapped up in other people's game. You were teaching at a young age, and and those internships with us. I mean, you certainly got to knock the ball around, and, and you you got to play. But most people are playing all day. You were playing a little bit, and um, the benefits I think have been, have been outstanding for you. But I would just remember explaining that you know quantity is way up on the list. You have to have quality. In quantity, but what, what wins early on with tennis players is quantity wins. Early on, the person who's hit the most balls, you know, some kid starts playing, and hopefully they're well taught. You know, they start playing at five, and another kid starts playing at ten. You know, the five year old has a head start, and it's not going to be that easy for the ten year old um, to catch up within, say, like that time where you know they've they've only put two more two years in the game. I mean, they they have to put a long time in. And that's where I love the John Woodenism, you know, never try to be better than your opponent. You know, the competition's in the mirror. Just, just you have to get better. You have to get better. With uh, how does your work today, when you get up in the morning, how is it like tennis? How is it competitive? I think when we, as I mentioned, we had a really kind of heavy ramp up uh, as the, basically the, the fund was launching. And, um, Basically, you know, we wake up very early to kind of handle some overnight processes that'll 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 go down with, in terms of data collection. So we, you know, we, we'll pursue more data-driven, model-related, model-related strategies, and so that requires a huge input of of data that that comes in, and a lot of the, that data will come in will come in overnight. And there 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 are streamlined ways to go through data pipelines, and that's all fine. But you know, some things, you know, sometimes things will break, and we'll have a, we got to have this you know daily schedule to make sure that things happen on time. Um, so especially early on, it was, you know, waking up, going through, handling things, showing up during the day back in the office to then resolve any issues that, that would come up and then kind of growing through this really iterative process to make sure that things uh, played out fine. Um, but, you know, in the same way that a player would, um, would, you know, kind of wake up, go through a routine, make sure they come to practice, hit balls, adjust issues. It doesn't happen overnight, right? It ends up kind of being this really gradual improvement process um, overall. So the same way that we would you know, show up to every morning to NC State, go through, um, you know, warm up, doing you know, drop hits, um, playing games, right? And of course, gradually you know, making these changes to, to technique. Those, you know, the te- technical changes won't happen overnight. It takes some, as you mentioned, you know, it takes a whole bunch of quantity to, to go through. Um, but I feel like I carry a lot of the same routines and habits that I would apply for for tennis, and kind of are able to shift those into into the work I'm doing now. So again, in terms of secondary benefits, there's a certain mindset that one develops that can be really applied to improve and learn. Basically, when we're around you, Steve, it's like. How do we, we're learning how to learn, right? And that can apply to academics, that can apply to a new job or any kind of new field. Actually, thinking back about different experiences, I know NC State, obviously, public university. So we were there working together. Then also European camp, Dusseldorf. But being in North Carolina, um, and certainly it was uh, months, months later, I was, I, was travel, I was doing traveling clinics. When my son, Connor, turned pro, I sold real estate to fund his pro career. And, and that was basically, you know, I sold my tennis school. I, no, I didn't really sell my tennis school. I just, I sold the real estate place where we could sleep 20 players. You know, it, it was a really unique setting. 
had an apartment in the back and a, a, a girl's house, a boy's house. They were attached to basically it was two townhouses. But we ended up at a tennis club in Lake Norman near Charlotte. And I, I remember within a week, um, I had two people come and they would buy the land next to it. it was a, this couple had built a beautiful facility, $5.5 million, but it, it was, there was no dorms, there was no track, there was no cafeteria, this and that. But there was land for sale and certainly um, just had a few people come and visit and they said uh, they, they would be in if just everything would work out. And like, you know, for me, I remember telling the, the, the owner, I said, no, you don't really have to pay me. I'll, I'll generate my own revenue. As long as I, you know, we decide now and it's, it's January. I said, yeah, if I, I can generate my own revenue. But Matt Clore was in between um, where he, he had left NC State and he was also motivated to be in Carolina. You know, that, and he's from Western Carolina. So he was there as the two of us and others, um, and volunteers and people visiting. Um, but to go into the business, uh, you, know, you know, you have your owner operator and then you come in and you're going to provide, and I don't really like to think of it as a service, but you're going to provide your education. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on, you know, the great base, um, you know, and we could, we could elaborate and go through it in details, working at a tennis facility. What, what, do you, what, do you, what would you think the problems are? So typically, um, you know, Steve's going to come into a new new area. Great Place is going to come into some, some new kind of facility that hasn't seen it before. I mean, I think in the vast majority of places, there has been an incumbent set of coaches, right? And they're also going to have their own respective students that have been there. So, of course, when the whole Great Base comes in as a total new set of instructions basically of new of how to go about strokes um there can definitely be some some inertia so when it comes to you know the owner operator side of things and structuring of bringing in a new coach when one one set of when one party owns the facility though there can be some some frictions there right in this specific instance we were talking about this and an an owner of a of a facility who's also operating it so you know they're going to have their own you know they own the place so that's you know they're kind of really driving they have the full vested interest in in the facility and how it performs um but they also have their own their own coaching staff that you know any new great base system would then have to also you know figure things out with in those kinds of situations you know there's going to be more friction than there would be if you know if the owner just totally delegated all coaching responsibility out to someone who'd come in with a great base initiative. Right. So it's basically, I think it all comes down to, you know, how one deals with that inertia, right? If there's going to be no inertia, then it's very easy to just set up a program to then build out a whole system. If there's going to be an incumbent operator, right. Then, um, you know, there, there's going to be, you know, some different kind of, things to really figure out there when it comes, if the owner is also involved in that, then they're going to have a vested interest. That's going to, that could you know, result in a, in a conflict of interest. Um, so if, you know, the, the, in this situation, an owner could kind of reach their hand in and say, okay, I want things this way. But if that directly conflicts ends up being a distraction to, you know, the true benefit of the students, then, you know, things are not always going to work out. No, so many things we've touched upon this in other podcasts, the comedian, Ron White, great line. You can't fix stupid. 
I just love that line. You can't fix stupid. Mark Twain, now this is not verbatim, but be careful when arguing with an idiot. Be careful when you're arguing with an idiot. What they'll do is take you to their own level. That's all they're capable of. So, you know, the idiot's going to bring you down to their level because they're going to be an idiot. And um, no, it just, it's amazing. I've gone places for years as a consultant and it's like, well, let's change it for the 10 and unders because you show up and there's 15 year olds and they've been coaching these 15 year olds for five years and they have no, no technical base. And they have a fun, action-packed program. It's a lot of scrimmaging, a lot of playing, move up, move down, a lot of live ball. And then you're going to show up and videotape and go, okay, we've got to change grips here. And it's like, whoa. And so, so then what happens is the, the owners are really concerned about the bottom line. You know, they don't want the bottom line to go way down. In pro sports, they get rid of everybody. You know, they're bringing in a new new. Like say in college football, I bring in a new head coach. He, he gets his own staff. Everybody's gone. Oh, he, some there might be some people that are spared, and they get to you know stay with a new incoming coach. But in pro sports, um, that just doesn't happen. I, I think one thing for the, the parents to realize, because I always tease, say I've been fired by hundreds and hundreds of twelve year olds. I mean that's an exaggeration, but you know you, you do some work, and it's like no, they they don't sign up they go down the road and when they go down the road, they just go down the road five miles. It's not like, you know, say a parent is, or parents are very unhappy with their local coach and they're getting a new local coach. It's a local coach. It's not like it's a national search and they bring somebody in to coach their kid. Um, with, I really think though, um, it, the person at the top, if the person at the top, the person in charge and I think in the triangle with the parent, the player, and the coach, the person who should be in charge is the parent. You know, they're writing the checks. But for the most part, they're blindly writing checks because they don't have consumer knowledge. They, you know, that's where the, a lot of times the parents will take shortcut, shortcuts. The Orange Bowl just came to an end, and I've told people for years, you know, I just walk through the Orange Bowl, and especially the boys, and I just watch the service motions. And so many of those young guys... Not so much the gals, but the, the guys think, okay, I'm going to become a pro player. I'm going right from here and I'm going to be making money on the tour. And, you know, live and let live and it's great to have dreams. And, but you can just watch their service motion and, and it's amazing how many of them will fall into tennis teaching. They didn't plan on being a tennis teacher, but they become a glorified sparring partner. They can hit the ball. And people have heard me say that before. Then boxing, the sparring partner, they wear a helmet, mouth guard, and they don't say anything. But the, the person who can hit the ball a little bit, it's like they become an expert just because they're a sparring partner. But it's, it's very difficult um, to go in and say, okay, this is the direction we're going to take. But the, the thing to do is actually to go in and you have to document development. We are going to film everybody. We are going to skill test everybody. And say the certain, you know, certain age group, of the kids that are playing competitive tennis, we're going to film them playing points. And... You know, then 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 you have, you have to meet with the parents. But then, what I would recommend is say, okay, you have two programs. You have to keep the old one going. Okay, uh, Dennis Vandermeer, match play and simulated drills. You keep the old one going. We say this is the new one. And then what will happen is the kids that are taking ten steps back to take a hundred steps forwards, 
they'll end up going further down the road. But people are just judging it in the moment. You know, there's a lot of uh, large clubs and a lot of small cities that really don't produce one college tennis player per year. And then it's just another crop of players coming through. There's, there's very little accountability. Now, you could touch upon this in the world that you're in. Um, I would think, you know, a business, there has to be a business plan, but you can masquerade as a tennis teacher. You, you, know, you certainly can't masquerade. For you to get into business school, you had to take the tough accounting class, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, it would be a different set of classes. Yeah, um, accounting, yes, was one of them. And, you know, you, you, you again, repeating myself, uh, with the accountant, uh, perfection is a minimal standard. I mean, it, this is what it is. But tennis teaching, it's so abstract. It's just so abstract. You know, we were, you, you were in the room today, young boys, highly ranked. On, uh, on the backhand side, he doesn't get the racket away from his body. He won't hit true topspin. On the forehand side, he doesn't get the racket under the ball. He won't hit true topspin. And the most dangerous thing about tennis, perhaps just junior tennis, is you're comparing yourself to the person on the other side. And, you know, it's, it's, you know uh, how are you going to improve your UTR? Well, I'm going to beat somebody with a higher UTR. You know, they just don't understand you got to do this, this, that, and the other thing. I think hitting on this point a little bit more, especially when it comes to, you know, focusing on UTR and different, you know, rankings and whatnot, I think it comes down to developing the right metrics, right? So when you're talking about, you know, the goal should just be to go out and play. How can one develop the right metrics such that that, you know, that mindset is really honed in on and one doesn't get held back by any kind of negative, you know, effect that, you know, initial initial negative effect that might happen to a ranking just because you're making technical changes, right? At the end of the day, what we're focused on is long-term, is long-term growth. So how does one develop the right metrics to go through to make sure that they're focused on the right things and not just solely focused on ranking when that can cause them to be stuck in poor technical form? Um, One, you know, which you talk about before is, you know, setting up a calendar for different, you know, making sure that one goes through and does, you know, 50-50 every morning um, does their shadow swings, um, you know, goes through the whole how to practice at home routine. But outside of just kind of developing, you know, check, you know, checklists for, you know, certain routines, what are, what are other good ways to, to measure development? You talk about, you know, documenting progress, which is great. Yes. But what are also great ways to just document um, and measure the right, the right things? Measurement, anything that can be measured can be improved. I like how you put an emphasis on communication. So typically when I'm teaching a charting class, I say Pepsi versus Coca-Cola. And it's like, well, where does that come from? When I was a kid, my parents used to go to Keene, New Hampshire, and I was dragged along and I would caddy at this member guest. And I thought it was so cool that these friends of my parents crossed the street the uh, parent people lived across the street. They had each, you know, husband, wife, each had a car. The license place were Coke One and Coke Two. They worked for Coca-Cola. Um, my sister, one of my sisters worked, I, I would say, in, in corporate Pepsi. But Pepsi versus Coke. I coached a junior whose father um, drove a Coke truck and just, just was told maybe it was a Pepsi truck, vice versa. If he would, if you were driving the Pepsi truck and you drove, and you were caught drinking Coca Cola, you you lose your job. 
they're just like, oh, okay, they're pretty serious about this product. Um, but in the business world, you, you know, people are always gauging, okay, how, how are we doing? You know, is this up? Is this down? But not so much in tennis. I don't think that people in tennis know where they're losing. You know, okay, your serve, you know, Vic Braden, your serve is like a grenade and you're trying to run underneath it. You know, it's, you know, it's a fuzz sandwich. You're going to hit your serve. It's coming back so fast. Uh, fuzz sandwich. Your serve is so bad. You can read the label on the ball when it floats over the net. But yeah, I think that um, in your, in your work day to day in New York, is it measurement on how the, how the business is doing? Yeah, I mean, it'll come down to, you know, any, any, any fund will look at P, uh, profit and loss, right? So making sure that, you know, things are generally running smoothly. But, you know, that's kind of like looking at a ranking. What we'll look for is, you know, gradual improvement of the models that, that, we, that we work on. So I think, you know, when I talked about kind of showing up and making sure that we're just honing our craft and making sure that we can do the best that we can do. Yeah, I mentioned that there, are some, you know, there can be some issues that come up, but they're also more just technical um, you know, both on the technology side and also on the modeling side, making sure that we can gradually that we can gradually go through. And, um, and there'll be different metrics that that show up there, um, but it's not solely based off of PNL, right? PNL ends up being kind of the after effect relative to the improvements that we work on with our models. So that's analogous to um, you know, working on you know technique, making sure that one focuses on the right metrics, but then having ranking end up being the secondary effect that comes out of that. I like the line that improvement comes in stages. It's not overnight. Improvement comes in stages. You just don't turn it around. You know, there's no really quick fix with, um, let's talk a little bit about Great Base and now we have, have a nonprofit status. I paid a lawyer and she said to me, because what I've done now, any of the content we have, it belongs to the Great Base. At my age, she said, well, what I would recommend is you just sell the content. And I said, I really don't want to do that. You know, the internet gurus where, you know, there, here's seven secrets to the serve, and our listeners have heard this, and, you know, they give you three, and for the other four, give me your credit card by midnight. I just think it's so sleazy and so tacky and so wrong. And also, too, is that... You know, we were, it's not like we've really invented anything. We're just carrying the torch for people gone before us. So then also, too, in trying to raise money with a nonprofit, she said, you know, she said, well, it's going to take a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of time and effort to raise money. And, you know, why don't you just make money, uh, make it a business? And I said, no, I, you know, when, when Braden passed away, there was not really a, a plan. Mike McLaughlin was a guest on our podcast, and... Um, you know, I really with Vic, um, I there's only you know I'm I'm almost seventy, I'm sixty eight years old. There's not that many of us on the planet that really understand Braden methodology, and it's irrelevant. It's it's it will always stand the test of time. The tennis court, unless they change the dimensions of the court, unless the laws of gravity change, that will always hold water. I mean, it's just people just don't understand. It's physics, and um, the, it's it's just the wild, wild west. You, know, you can two plus two in tennis teaching equals whatever you want it to be. Two plus two doesn't equal four. Um, you know, I think yourself. Uh, I had you meet with a fellow professional day. I, you know, from the real world, a professional. Um, 
I guess uh, we tennis teachers, I think of us as the late Peter Burwash, one, one step above a beach bum. But what thoughts do you have on, now it's, now it's grade-based tennis education. And just here the last, before it was in September, so it's been, we haven't really, you know, I need to change what I do day to day. I mean, I still can coach, but I need to consolidate and, and organize my day where um, my, my strength is my weakness. I've taught and taught and taught, but it's like, okay, I need to be able to have time to, to help be part of a team that can put this together. We, we need to reach more people. And, you know, this past week, it was beautiful. This family came, two families came from Minnesota, and they're studying the content. And this little girl, five and a half years old, I'll have to show you a, a little film that we have. Um, it's amazing. And that's really what the Great Bay should be about. It doesn't cost a fortune, and the parent can help the young five-year-old in the garage, in the basement, in the driveway, and the, the model of, okay, I have to join a tennis club and I've got to take all these private lessons, it's just, it's too expensive. But, but tell us a few thoughts on you know, what you, like the, the future, I mean, and you've been a big part of it. And, and I think our listeners need to understand is that if you were to watch Rom hit a ball or watch him teach, once you study it, once you know it, you know it. You know, it's, you know, it's a language. High, low, high, inside out, the hitting zone. You know, it's, it's just language. The grip determines the angle of the racket face. You know, when we put tennis intelligence applied, we thought people, young coaches, would study the content. But then we found out that there's no sheepskin. You know, there's no degree. So then we put the, a short course together called Great Base Initiative. Um, when I, for 10 years, I taught people where they could get a grade. You're going to give them an A, a B, a C, a D, or an F. When you coach juniors, you're not giving them a grade, but they're going to get a W or they're going to get an L. And, you know, they really, the, the rate of forgetting is so scary so fast. They don't do what they're told. I tell people, yeah, they, they fly in here, they get an airplane, they come in here and I tell them what to do. They don't do it. Oh, sure, they'll do it. Right? They'll do it for the week, the three weeks that they're here. But, yeah, go ahead on that. Your thoughts, I know we've talked about it briefly. Yeah, sure. I think, um, I mean, overall, the... Um yeah, goal with Great Base is, I think, you know, understanding the you know, mission and objectives first then kind of help seeing what future paths could look like, right? So if we, you know, one of the key tenets is to make sure that the right information gets into you know, everyone's hands as much as possible. You know, there can be, as you mentioned, you know, information out there that's not you know, totally correct. Kind of getting some information out there that's actually, you know, Physically, biomechanically, you know, follow certain true tenets could be extremely valuable to general tennis population. If there's, you know, we we see so many you know, students come in who start down the wrong path, that could be averted just if they started with the right, the right set of fundamentals. So, kind of starting getting information out to people as soon as they start, and getting that information out as much as possible ends up being, you know, one of the main main objectives. Um, additionally, I think I think part of the um, part of the goal there too is to make sure that you know, this doesn't this isn't done um, in a way that other folks who do go down a path of not you know, teaching the best fundamentals go down. Um, and the goal isn't to say, okay, you know, we have you know our you know 
it's, a, it's not a way to look down negatively on, on, on those folks where maybe they haven't you know, come across information on their end too. Um, but we also want to make sure that you know, we can kind of differentiate ourselves um, and make sure that we're pursuing a truly kind of benevolent path as we as, as the Great Base goes forward. So given that, um, one, you know, couple couple ideas that, that do come up with the you know, nonprofit status too. You know, practically, even though um, you know, we want to pursue the nonprofit status, I think that kind of ties into that latter, that latter kind of sentiment, right? Where we want to kind of get the information out as much as possible, but we don't want to um, just do so in a totally kind of money-centered, greedy way, right? As, lo- as long as, you know, there's so many profit-driven clubs that are out there that end up going kind of shifting down the wrong path just because the business models are more incentivized to keep students. And keeping students means that you may not always give them the criticism that they need. Um, so making sure that we pursue the kind of the right model to get them um, to keep, you know, to make sure that we develop effective students also also plays out. But along that path, it's possible to be a regular, to be in a regular um, profit-based business model, but still have a very benevolent mission, right? So there, there, there are different sides of it. Practically, in, you know, in my head, one of the main benefits to being a nonprofit are the, are the tax benefits. So um, if that's you know not so much of a factor, then you know maybe it is better to stay in a profit-driven model. Would we follow the same one that the lawyer had recommended? You know, maybe not. That doesn't seem the best way. Um, but it's, it, it is one path to consider where things could you know perform go down the same path as a more profit-driven model while we still maintain the right mission at hand. Um, along kind of that same line, let's say we you know kind of still want to go down a bit more of a donor path where where the Great Base is able to kind of gather support from the various members that it has and to help kind of keep its mission going um, across time. Instead of going down the full donor path in which basically funds are raised and then spent basically that year and kind of going through that recurring process every year, I'm curious if the Great Base could also explore kind of a bit more of an endowment model. I think for me, in my head, when I look at Different different cases, and not, it's not like I'm some kind of you know big finance or you know strategic finance expert. But it's nice to see kind of you know self generating models that are able to self sustain. Under the nonprofit model, you know one would have to raise funds in a given year, spend it, and then go through the same fundraising process and spending process every single year. Right? That has a, that can take up a lot of overhead. It's very easy to develop different inefficiencies. Um, and this isn't, you know, a total criticism to the nonprofit model. There are different use cases for nonprofits, for sure. In this scenario, I'd be curious to see if we can, you know, if it's, if there are donors that are willing to really dive into or really support the Great Base going forward for however many generations to make sure that the right, you know, that tennis develops in the right way uh, overall, we could raise the funds uh, under this endowment model, put them into an investment vehicle, and basically, in the same way that you know, universities basically have their own endowments and then are able to take a slice of proceeds or dividends and then cover costs based off of that, we could pursue a similar model where we're not relying on this constant churn every single year to cover you know, at least a certain set of expenses. That can be, those funds can go into this investment vehicle. Proceeds can go into cover whatever expenses are necessary for a portion of facilities fees, coaching expenses, um, equipment fees um 
and going down this path could result in a more self-sustaining process down the road. With a phrase that's used often in, in tennis teaching conferences, and you touched upon it, the only business is repeat business. And so if you give kids what they want, I think you really need to, in tennis, market through the parent. If you make it fun, 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 they want to come back. So like a lot of junior tennis players, they're happy Monday through Friday. They go to the tournament on Saturday. They're not, they're not too happy. Um, with our listeners, uh, one experience of many with, with, with Rom, I took the title, Bob Brett, who passed away, Australian, who did a lot of things with this federation and that federation. Uh, he was hired as the advisor initially for Patrick Mortagolo when he father got him in the tennis business. But Bob would, you know, say be a tennis candidate. He'd be the directing consultant. I remember one of my brothers told me, a consultant, you show up, you tell people what the problems are, and then you leave. And then uh, Bob, Bet, Bob Brett, uh, directing consultant, you show up and you fix the problems. So at Tennis Memphis, a group of 24 months, I was there 21 months. I didn't think I'd be there 21 months because we were trying to help someone get a visa, and, and that didn't work out. But we told the uh, executive director, Stephen Lang, I said, you know, I'm just taking a weekly salary and I'm generating sometimes, you know, know, so much more than that. So there were funds and you were flown in and you you were on your spring break and you were in high school and you ran a workshop for the, the coaches. And I said, hey, we need to have the administrators. We need to have everybody on staff who can come out and watch this young man do a training session because teaching is information and he has the information and you have to study to get the information you have to read. Um, it's amazing to me that most tennis teachers, you know, even like say with Braden's book, tennis 2000, which is the updated version of tennis for the future is that people need to read that book. I've coached people for years and I know people that are coaching tennis that, that have never read that. Um, uh, with uh, Memphis, everybody has an agenda. So our agenda was to go in, and, and the motive was, yes, yeah, certainly we wanted, to, and I know you, you've taught inner-city kids, we wanted to go and help inner-city kids, but we also wanted to prove that um, what we do works. What we do works. We document development and uh, you know, stick around, and if someone stays the course, start the course, stay the course, is we get people to win um, with, um, but with endowments, uh, tennis Memphis, I, um, you know, I still connected in some ways with, with tennis Memphis, but, and certainly hope them the best, but, or hope for the best for them, my English with an endowment. We just had Raleigh Grossbaum here and we trained him and now he's the, Head, the assistant coach at Dartmouth. We, we spent a little time working with a head coach. And a lot of those positions, the head coaches, they're endowed. And um, one thing, you know, Raleigh said, he, you know, he's you know, aware. He wasn't really privy, like, to the dollar, but a lot of the former Dartmouth players, they make big money and they donate big money. Um, I one time saw a photo of John McEnroe sitting it was in Indian Wells. He was sitting between Bill Gates and Larry Ellison, two of the richest people in the world. And I just, I put up a post that I wish I could talk to those two guys. Um, yeah, but I, I do think that to get the right people behind it and 
but I think that would be more dealing with parents. You know, certainly, you know, you, some corporations, if an employee gives you $5,000, their, their company will match it. I, again, I know so little about it, but I think you have to ask people to be a fundraiser instead of asking people for money. Well, you, you help you be part of the team and help us raise money. But I think really that the, the internet is so inexpensive and all the social media platforms, what we need to just do is do what we're doing better. If, you know, if we had the wish list and we had a big pile of money, I'd say, okay, we need to have written materials, manuals, like a coloring book and start from the really tiny tots and go up. So you put it, put it, you know, the, the artwork, um, actually the lawyer who helped us called what we, what we have is a body of work. You know, I, someone said about our content online, it's like drinking water from a fire hose. It's there, but it's, if someone wants to navigate, so, well, the, the, the dad of this young five-year-old, you know, he's just jumped in the middle of the pool. Now, but I think a lot of times people say, well, let me just push a few buttons. And, you, you know, it's like, well, really, you need to make, you need to immerse yourself. You need to make a complete study. Um, it, it's, you know, and I, I've been told this too, is that people, they don't want to read anything. They just want to, they just want to see it. I think we're the, one of the only outfits, um, you know, I know Ryan Reedy does a very good job giving out educational information. But we're one of the only outfits. I don't. I can't really think of someone else. Um, but again, there's so much out there. I wouldn't. I know. I was. I was told there's. Uh, this, as of last month, there's 2.5 million podcasts. <laughs> Maybe by the end of this month, it'll be three million. But everybody and their brother has a podcast. But there's everybody and their brother has a, um, an Instagram page and a Facebook page and. Um, but we're one of the one of the only outfits that show people hitting the ball. So we show before and after and, um, but yeah, let's wind this down with, uh, um, you know, for me, uh, someone who helps me with my finances, the world of economics says, well, when you get your angel wings, um, really the torch, and it's not just Braden, um, like speaking of Ryan Reedy, he was taught by Jim Klein. Jim Klein was taught by me. So Ryan, he gives out great information, and he, you know, he certainly, you know, he's, he's acknowledged Jim. He's acknowledged me, but he really, which is great, he acknowledges Braden. But someone like Andy Fitzell, for example, can listen to Ryan's presentations, and they're they're great. But some of the information is not Braden's, because the, the we always say Vic's the, the Christmas tree, but we have all these ornaments. Um, but no, I, the tennis needs a shot in the arm. I mean, um, tennis right now, we need to teach people to play pickleball. Learn tennis to play pickleball. Tennis players are the best pickleball players. Learn tennis to play pickleball and then go to tennis. Because right now, if you can't beat them, you got to join them. You know, they're growing faster than we are. And it just and it fits society. But you know, tennis has got its four Super Bowls and it's it's never going to go away, but especially in this country, it needs a shot in the arm. But why don't you wrap it up, say a few, say a few other things about the future of ROM and the future of the Great Base. I mean, it seems like a very good path forward so far. I think, you know, getting 
getting the right kind of target goals in line will be very crucial to figuring out the next steps. You know, we've, you know, I've highlighted, you know, getting the information out, which, you know, you've done through various courses, but there's also going to be, you know, preservation of the material, making sure that it, it you know, cascades over, over time. Uh, and you have a huge student body as well, right? But I think part of it too with, with the great base is, I mean, Various tennis teachers can come along, but I think you're, you know, you the the effect that you have, Steve, is that you come in and it really require you you, you enforce a total revamp of someone's um, total lifestyle, and that carries home, right? I think a lot of coaches carry an effect on the tennis court and it stops at the tennis court. How do you make sure that that? I think you come in and then you help carry whatever habits show up on the tennis court back back home, and so. Um, figuring out ways in which the same kind of effect that one can have, um, you know, after you and with the, with the next generation of coaches uh, will be will be very important. Um, it's very easy to just kind of like let things go on the tennis court. I think there would be certain personalities that can that can have that effect, right? You've, I think over time you've told me, you've told me stories about other coaches that can be very intense that can have that effect. Being able to kind of group them together to carry this on over time will be will be very important. Um, aside from even just kind of, you know, grouping together the right set of students for, um, kind of the next generation, there'll also be, um, you know, getting the right kind of home base set up maybe, right? I think you've, you've had so many students already in the past, so many of them go on to start their own academies, but they, fundamentally they end up following the great base and it's all the same material off of which, you know, you've, you've accumulated your body of work. Um, so in a lot of ways, you already have that whole, you're, you've already had a you know, huge effect, but how this, this can be condensed and carried on, um, as a, as a, as a game plan, you know, down the road, um, can still be, can still be figured out, I guess, right. There'll just be various components when it comes to yeah, marketing side, which we've talked about, you know, social media, um, finding the right coaches and then making sure that the right staff on the admin side. Um, playing, playing well too, but um, you know it's all very optimistic. Just got to kind of nail down the right details and plan forward. Optimistic. Um, some ways, I feel like it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. There's just so much. Vic Braden said about the internet, so much bad information going out so fast. We do have a large alumni, a, a group of alumni and associates. We do have ghost followers, people that we've trained, and. You know, they don't acknowledge that we've trained them. That's, 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 that's a fact. We have um, um, many people that are taking the content, which is some ways it's, it's A-OK. I know Andy Fissell did such a great job with putting out educational content for a two-year period. And people would, boot, I, I think the term is bootleg, they would copy it. They, he would do a tip on the forehand and the backhand to serve. And then they would reshoot it and put it up as their own. And, you know, certainly we all work for, for how's it go, money, satisfaction, recognition. But it didn't need to be redone because when it was redone, it wasn't done as well. Um, I do think, you know, some people can donate money. Some people can donate time. I think it's so important in a nonprofit to tell people, what are you going to do with the money? As, you know, Right now, I don't think it's like we have to raise a ton of money, but at the same time, oh, if you had a wish list, but we just need to do what we're doing better. And, you know, everything that we've done has just has been done when you're having these, seriously, and you know you've been 
And thank you for that. You know how our days go. We're coach, coach, coach. And, and so many times we're not capturing what we do and, and sharing that with, I think one thing for yourself is um, obviously the listeners through this podcast, they're, they're not observing you hitting balls and seeing that skill set. They're not observing you teaching tennis, but you had the maturity and you had the discipline to study the content. And if, if people do that, you actually, like for myself with Braden, I tell people, if you really study Braden, then you just go out and you're practicing, you're teaching, you get your, you know, the, you're logging the hours. You start to put it together. You know, Brian Clark mentioned that there's so many layers to the great base. Is that like, well, this makes sense and this makes sense. I mean, you think of, okay, here's the percentage line connected to the percentage post. It's three and a half feet inside the sideline approximately. Here's the path of the racket, the path of the racket. It's like, it's been broken down. It's been dummy down. It's tennis on a silver platter. You follow the directions. But, you know, a, ten, a tennis player, a junior tennis player, they have so much of their own, they create so much of their own interference. Uh, then there's parent interference. Uh, Gino Octa was talking to Casey Curtis. I think we mentioned that on a podcast, and he said about Milos Raonic's parents, zero interference. You know, Jim Lair, he's on our podcast, mental toughness, eliminate the external, external, eliminate the external stimuli, focus on the task at hand. The task at hand is can you hit a serve? Yeah, we just do those five letters. Can you serve? Can you return? Can you rally? Can you transition? Can you play? With, but I, I think really, like for yourself, you're not in the tennis profession, but um, it is a corporate sport. But you you meet so many people of influence. But we we need to take people like yourself. As I said, I had you talk to a fellow professional today, someone who doesn't make their living in tennis, but like you, they're a student of the game. They're, they've made all these observations, and again, I think it's a matter of making it community making a community and you know the Swedes did it I went to Sweden in the 80s just to study what they were doing because they had I think it was six six players in the top 10 and they they trained 10,000 animators now I never really liked baseball but I remember one summer I asked my mother if I could just shoot pucks in a driveway instead of play baseball and she said everybody plays baseball it's un-American not to play baseball so I played baseball but with that, um, little league coaches, you know, volunteer coaches. And I, I mean, with uh, my father was one of those guys who coached the little kids. But, he, you know, he did it for close to 40 years. I, there's so many parents that they just are involved in little kid sports when their kid is a little kid. And, you know, and everybody's met someone where you know, the dad's coaching the youth team so their kid can be, you know, first line this or this position, that position, uh, so many things. And years ago in sports, there was residency rules. You had to play where you lived, and that's, that's gone away. And now it's, it's crazy out there. There's, there's people recruiting eight-year-olds to be on, be on a soccer team. But I, I do think that um, from the pandemic, there's positives, is that um, you know, what people do now with Zoom calls and connecting and um, but we need to find a way to, I remember I did this one clip and Vic Braden, um, said, he said, you're right on. And it was 
not too many years after that he passed away, but I said, we have to circle the wagons. You know, the expression is, okay, maybe it's inappropriate to talk about cowboys and Indians. You know, no one back in the day said cowboys and Native Americans, but circle the wagons because it is a fight. You know, you're, you're, you're in tennis, you're fighting ignorance every day. And uh, there's all sorts of kids that we've coached that, you know, what have they done with the information? And, you know, they're going out and many times they're playing against kids who have no information. And sometimes that kid's actually better in the beginning because it's just primal. They're just trying to gut out the rally. Really, the younger age groups, I mean, the only thing they're trying to do maybe is bang a big forehand. There's no approach shots. There's no approach volleys. There's no volleys. There's no overheads. There's no patterns. And that kid, it's, that's, their system is so simple. They're not trying to develop. Um, they're not trying to make their game a masterpiece. But, no, it's been great to have you on the podcast. I'll give you the final word. Um, with uh, He is the Rami baby, the, the guy with the last name that's impossible to spell. Say it one more time. Vupala Dudium. Um, you want to sing happy birthday in Telugu before we sign off? I'll give it a shot. Go, go for it. Janmadinam Shubhakangshalu. Janmadinam Shubhakangshalu. Janmadinam Shubhakangshalu, Niku. Janmadinam Shubhakangshalu. It's great. Our record is 17. 17 languages. We, we sing happy birthday when we have kids. Um, why don't you, with uh, Indian accent, uh, teach the forehand ground stroke? See. I don't want to offend the, uh, the, 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 the parents or the, the, the tennis kids we, we coach have no accent, but we've met many parents that have the accent. What do you want to do? We want to do the full, full stroke so we can do Well, you can pick the stroke, whatever. You Let's just, do. Ready position. Turn for the forehand volume. Right elbow up. Red, uh, right wrist bent. Turn more for the forehand ground stroke. Three-point landing. Hood the racket face, go out to contact, swing inside out, and follow through, finish up high. That's very good. Let's go through this so that this guy, you know, he's very close to being a perfect human being. But tell the listeners what you did when you were in school when you have a substitute teacher. <laughs> there would be there'd be times when we'd have a sub and it'd be a... Um, I'd rub my hands together and say, okay, this will be, be fun. So sub would come in. I'd switch to the Indian accent and basically, you know, people would, would giggle around me because I'd be using an Indian accent, but the, but the sub would think that they're, that they're laughing at me because I have an Indian accent, right? They, she thought it was a, a negative thing. They're laughing at it because they, they know I actually don't have one. Um, but there'd be, you know, some semantics that, that I'd pull as well. You know, if I'm, if they, if she'd pick on me, um, you know, I would give an answer back and let's say I had like a four point, a, a, you know, a couple points of the answer. I'd say first this, second this. I I talk really quickly. I'd skip the third point, and go to the fourth one. So she's like, "Oh my God, where did where did third go?" And you'd kind of see a little bit of shock shock come up. But um, it was it was good. Uh, you know, non you know non mean kind of innocent fun. It was good. It was good until yeah, like seventh through eighth grade, seventh seventh through ninth grade. Oh, there's so many things that we can dig out too. Uh, you know, getting kids to sing. I remember you helping so much. Andy Fitzell teaches the, these improv classes that are amazing. You know, when you have an overnight tennis camp, some of that's gone away. You, you know, you, you put teams together. And, do you remember that the group that you, it was one girl that was so quiet 
and we started the very first day of the camp. And it was, uh, it was, it was a five, six week camp. It wasn't like 10 weeks, but you know, every day, okay, 10 minutes, boom, get your group, practice your song. I mean, 10 minutes, I've heard people say, if you do something 10 minutes, like you focus on one topic for 10 minutes, the rest of your life, you become an expert. You're 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes, just like with the yoga. But uh, what was that song? Do you remember? I don't think I do. Yeah, um, we could find it on Facebook. Yeah, but no, I, no, it was choreographed, and you were, you had, we added dancing to it, and you know, you have to get people to overcome their stage fright. You know, you have to be careful with that. You know, it's okay. Everybody tell a clean joke. Can you tell a story? Can you tell a joke? Sing, dance. We used to have uh, music being played, and we'd have the kids line up in the alleys, and we'd have a dance off, and then it just got to be where. People grabbing body parts, and it's like, okay, we can't, we can't do that anymore. Um, but just get kids to come out of their shell. You know, some kids you have to, you know, hold them back because they're just totally extroverted. They'll go talk to a tree. They cannot not talk. And then some kids are so quiet. Um, but no, it's it's so important for competitors um, to get over stage fright. You know, I think so many times kids play junior tennis, junior tennis, and they're you know, Ty Tucker, we asked him about that the other t- a couple of podcasts ago, talk about the three all matches. And, you know, whoa. And it's just, everybody just zeroes in. There were six courts going. Now there's just one. Yeah, but stage right. All right, Rami, baby, last word for you. Great base. What do you got for us? He was with something for profound, something we could write on the bathroom wall. When it comes down to it, right, focusing on, I guess we can, go, we can tie it back to metrics, focusing on the right metrics, that serve a better long-term purpose than any short-term gains will write things out the best way. Bruce Dern, the actor, you can't BS a stopwatch. It's amazing how many kids they don't get out of stopwatch. We tell kids, Hey, you're going home. Um, you, you've worked with our, our fitness trainer, and, you know, and really now every, everybody's a little bit of a fitness trainer, but a fitness trainer with expertise is, you know, you were in the room the other day was a kid going home for this semester break. And it's like, mark off 10 meters, 20 meters, 30 meters, 40 meters. It's very easy to give someone, you know, 50, 50 things to do. Um, but I think with measurement, uh, one, one podcast to go back to, we tell people all the time is tennis mass, but Rami baby, wave goodbye to the camera. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and, uh, trying to add more tennis, How's it go? More, uh, more golden nuggets to your tennis treasure chest. All right, thanks. Adios, amigos. Rom, great. Appreciate it. Thanks, Steve.